We are reading from Philippians chapter 3 this morning. Paul says, Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. For, as I have often told you before and now, say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. We were driving down from my house this morning. I live in Scotts Valley, and it's about, about 25 minutes door-to-door. We got in the car, and Brandon goes, Hey, if we were traveling the speed of sound, Mach 1, how long would it take us? I said, Well, you know, given the speed of sound and the distance, I said, About two and a half minutes. And he goes, That'd be so cool. I said, Yeah, it would be kind of cool, huh? As citizens of heaven... It's, it's not a segue, okay, so I just wanted to tell you that. Paul gives us a warning here. Uh, this passage is hard. I mean, it's a hard passage. Because he's, he's making a real clear distinction between citizens of heaven and citizens of hell. And he's saying there are only two. He starts off at the beginning of chapter 3, for those of you who are here the past few weeks. And without apology... In verse 2, he says, watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. Because they were teaching and preaching a gospel of another kind. They were saying, there's another way to get to heaven. There's another way to become a citizen of heaven. It's not through the gospel of grace. It's not through Christ. And it's not through the cross. And then, he sets out to, to dismiss altogether any other approach, especially a religious approach. And he brings in his own credentials. And he says, in verse 9, he says... I don't have a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. I have a righteousness which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. And he says, I know that if I have any citizenship at all in heaven, it's not because of me, my works, or my adherence to the law. He says, I of all people. If I'm a citizen of heaven, it's because of the work of Christ. It's because of the work of God. And then he says, as we looked at last week and the week before, I'm going to be zealous And I'm going to pursue this. I'm going to pursue this new citizenship I have as a result of the work of Christ. I'm going to run after it. I'm going to press on after it. I'm going to strain toward it. My whole life I'm going to commit to this. And the reason Paul did this is because he saw, as he was writing this, and I would argue till his last breath, something that we as a church still miss. And when I say church, I'm not talking about Camden Avenue. I'm talking about the church. We miss this. And we miss the fact that there are, there are really only two ways to live life. There are two ways to go through life. There are two ways to work. There are two ways to play. There are two ways to be married. There are two ways to raise your children. There are two ways to go to church. There are two ways to approach God. But there are only two. Two ways to live, two ways to die. And both of those ways have a distinct end, a destination. One way, Paul says is the storybook ending that we read about. 
throughout all of history. We read about this. this. This ending that is glorious and beautiful and joyful and God is present and Christ is your king and you are restored and you are glorious as well. He says, that's one ending. That's one way. He said, but there's also another way. And that end is destruction. That end is darkness, it's pain, it's misery. The Bible says it's the weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's hell. And I know we don't, we don't like to use that word today. We certainly don't like to use it in the context of preaching because that won't fill churches. But Paul is saying that end is destruction. It is separation from God. It is hell. And he doesn't sugarcoat it. By God's grace, nor will I today. The Bible teaches clearly that how you live your life now matters for this time and for all eternity. It matters. It means that every person, without exception, is either a citizen of heaven or a citizen of hell yet to be fully realized. But it's true. Both destinations are real. Both citizenships are real. Both ends are real. And so it's, it's foolish for us to just kind of go, well, we won't think about it. We won't think about it either. We'll just kind of get through life and see what happens. Paul's saying, no, you must think clearly in light of the gospel of grace and in light of scripture and live in accordance with it. A sobering passage, but by God's grace, we will hear and then run in the right direction. And three things I want you to see in terms of citizenship and destination. Number one, who are the citizens of hell? Who are they? Number two, who are the citizens of heaven? Who are they? And number three, how do we run in the right direction? Because if I were to take a poll, how many of you want to run toward heaven? Or how many of you run toward hell? I think very few hands say, oh, please, show me that direction that leads to eternal pain and misery and the weeping of gnashing of teeth. It's heaven that we want. It's God that we want. So let's first look at who the citizens of hell are. Point number one, verse 17, Paul says, Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. Now, why did he say do that? Why look for those who know Christ and then follow them? The answer he gives in verse 18. He says, For as I have often told you before and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Now, the NASB is a much better translation. It says many are enemies of Christ, of the cross. It's not just they live like it. They are enemies. Now, Paul's making a clear distinction. He's saying, listen, there are many who are opposed to the gospel of grace. They're opposed to the cross, and they're opposed to Christ himself. He obviously was talking about the Judaizers in verse 2 of this chapter. Those he designated the mutilators of the flesh. We know he's talking about them. But he's also talking about those outside of the church who teach gospels of another kind. And he is most specifically talking about those inside the church who have placed their hope and their security and their satisfaction and their eternal destination in something or someone other than Jesus Christ. He's saying there are people in your midst who do not look at the cross, that Roman means of death and execution. They do not look at the cross as the means of atonement that Christ satisfied to set sinners free. They don't see it like that. They don't see it like you see it. They argue there's another way, another way out of the darkness. Paul comes along and says, there is no other way. It's the cross and life, or it's something else and death. It's the cross and salvation and God, or it's something else and eternal separation and hell. What distinguishes Christianity 
from all of the religions is the cross of Christ. And Paul says this is the means by which we are identified and recognized and become citizens of heaven instead of citizens of hell. He says this is it. It's through the cross or not. So, who are the citizens of hell? I mean, we should know for two reasons. One, Paul says don't follow them, right? You don't want to follow them. And number two, we should want to know, hey, where's my citizenship? I mean, it's not like... In the church, we have these name tags, you know, uh, citizen of hell, right? It doesn't say that. You don't have that, that look, right? He has that hellish look or she has that hellish look about him. We certainly don't have a neon sign saying, caution, do not follow me. My end is destruction. So how are we to know? How are we to know who not to emulate and who not to follow? And how are we to, to check ourselves and evaluate ourselves? Lord, do I really belong to you? Am I yours? Verse 19. The Apostle Paul gives us three very simple characteristics of the person whose end is destruction, whose end is hell, whose citizenship is there. Look, of those whose destiny is destruction, Paul says their God is their stomach. Now, a better translation would be appetite or appetites. Now, before you, you get all sideways on me here, he's not talking about a pepperoni pizza with extra cheese, right? He's not, he's not, not necessarily, all right? What, what he's talking about here is those deep longings. Those dreams and aspirations and hopes that you've placed, or I should say that you've misplaced, in something or someone other than Jesus Christ. Other than the cross of Christ. All those deep longings that you've made ultimate longings, and you've replaced them as little gods. Little G-gods in your life. That's why he says, their God, their highest desire, their greatest worship, their ultimate longing is their appetite. It's their stomach. It's things that they want to consume. Now, at its most base level, it may be a pepperoni pizza. I mean, that may be your shtick, right? It may be food. It may be, it may be alcohol. It, it, may be, it may be pleasure. It may be sleep. It may be lots of, of base physical things. Maybe. For most people in our culture, it's, uh, it's a little more subtle than that. It's wanting, for most people in our culture in our time, it's wanting to be accepted, it's wanting to be somebody. It's wanting to, to be part of something. It's wanting to, to have an identity where they, they are secure. At its most refined level of deception, these appetites take on Christ-like characters. Or, or, or they look like Christ-like characteristics. You know, from a, a religious standpoint, this appetite would be um, those who say they got their strict list of do's and don'ts. And this is how you live your life. I mean, these are the right foods to eat, and these are the foods you do not eat, right? And you must, of course, the Judah said, you've got to get circumcised if you're going to live this life correctly. And you've got to go to church on a particular time. Those strict Sabbatarians, they say from sundown to Friday to sundown to Saturday. If you're not there during that time, you've missed the whole worship thing. We even go so far as to say today, there are certain songs you sing and certain songs you don't sing. There are certain ways that you dress and certain ways that you don't dress. And I'm not saying that there aren't wise parameters and even scripture teaches on some of those things. But when we make them ultimate, we become religious. And we're no different than the Pharisees. For many today, um, it's academics. Right? The person who says, I want to go to school, and I want to get my degrees, and I want to become smart, not to know God and know who I am before all God, because I want to be viewed as a scholar. I want people to look at me and think, man, he or she is really smart. For some, that ultimate goal, that ultimate appetite that needs to be satisfied is 
Today, very much so, it's the philanthropist who gives away a little bit of money or a lot of money. But not for the sake of helping the needy. It's so someone can say, wow, that person's really generous. That's really kind-hearted. And it's self-glorifying. The doctor who works tirelessly year after year to try to find a cure for breast cancer because his mother died of breast cancer when he was 12. Anything, good or bad, that we, that appetite that we've got to satisfy, that hunger, that deep hunger that we've got to have, that we put above Christ, reveals the heart. And it's not to submit to Christ. It's not to follow Christ or love him most. It's to something else. And Paul says this is a characteristic of someone who does not know Christ or the gospel. This is a characteristic a mark of a citizen of hell. Secondly, he says, those whose destiny is destruction, Paul says that their glory is in their shame. Now, this is a really, this is a weird one because he was experiencing teachers of the law coming in and they were perverting things. They're saying, if you don't adhere to these ceremonies and these laws, many of which were already dead in Christ, they were buried with Christ. He said, if you don't get circumcised, you don't really know Christ. I mean, you, you can say you know Christ, but you better get circumcised, and then we really know that you know him. And they were doing all of that to boast about other people's circumcision. It was perverted. Paul even talks about this in Galatians 6. He says, Not even those who are circumcised obey the law, yet they want you to be circumcised, so they may boast about your flesh. Boast and glory in sin. Now, it wasn't sinful to be circumcised, but it was certainly a sin to try to add that to the gospel. And that's exactly what they were doing. Rather than repenting of their sin or repenting of shameful ways, the, the citizen, not of heaven, says, wait a second. I'm going I'm to glorify in these things. I'm going to perpetuate them. And I'm going to get as many people, as Paul says in Romans chapter 1, to do the same as I'm doing. How many churches today, in the name of tolerance... I saw one of those bumper stickers coming down the hill this morning. You know what it has all that says tolerance? All those little, you know, all the different religions. In the name of tolerance, how many churches today have forsaken Scripture and then glorify in their forsaking it? Because we now are a tolerant people. We are a tolerant church. And, and many things have been sucked into that vacuum. I mean, how many churches today not only say that homosexuality is no longer sin, but now they encourage it in the pastorate? How many churches? It's not a small number. How many churches today glory in their new interpretation of divorce? That there are many reasons why people get a divorce in the modern era, and we need to interpret it differently. How many churches have forsaken gospel-centered preaching? I mean, just throwing it out the door. We'll do topical We'll do crisis-based preaching and teaching, but we won't do the gospel of grace. We won't focus on Christ, and we won't focus on Scripture. How many believers, let's, let's make it real personal, how many believers today have forsaken the Bible as being the inspired, revealed, all-sufficient Word of God? And when someone asks them, say, oh yeah, I, I'm beyond that. I've matured beyond that. I see better now. What I used to think as a kid, I don't, I don't think like that anymore. I'm more educated. And we glory in our own shame in denouncing the Bible as the Bible. Lastly, Paul tells us those whose end is destruction set their minds on earthly things. He said, listen, they're consumed with the affairs of this world. They're consumed with the affairs of their life. All the things that take place at home and at work and at school and in their marriage, it consumes them. It's all consuming. 
They are driven for prestige or for power or for personal gain. And obtaining these things is their greatest desire. And losing them is their greatest fear. And so Paul says, here's a mark. Here's an indicator that you can, that you can look at. And it's not so you can point and go, oh yeah, citizen of hell. That's, who, that's not why. He's saying, but we need to be wise here to evaluate who we're following. And we need to be wise in evaluating our own lives. Ask yourselves. I mean, you say, well, how am I supposed to know if I'm more too consumed with the affairs of this world? How am I supposed to know if I stored up treasures in here? What do you become most anxious over? What stresses you out the most? Are you most stressed about trying to obtain those things you really, really want? That husband, that wife, those children, that house, that job, that retirement, that career, that group of friends. Does that stress you out the most? And if you've already acquired those things that you want the most, are you really stressed about losing them? Your health, your looks. (laughs) I can laugh at that. Looks, health, as it goes to the wayside. Your future, your future security. Does that bring you the greatest sense of anxiety? Because those are good indicators of the treasures you've stored up here, of the hopes you've placed in here, in temporal things. Now, Paul's writing to a first century church in in the Roman Empire. And he's talking about temporal trappings, earthly treasures. And if it applied to them, it certainly applies to us, an American westernized culture. Where upward mobility and consuming the next greatest piece of technology has become a defining uh, moment in our culture. As a people, we're storing up our treasures on earth, we have to say, has reached new heights in mankind. Now, if that's true, one commentator put it like this. He said, if this is a characteristic of those who are enemies of the cross, this worrying about the world and wanting to consume and storing up their treasures here. He said, how many are there in the church now who are real enemies of the cross? He says, how many professing Christians are there who regard little else than worldly things? How many live only to acquire wealth, to gain honor, or to enjoy the pleasures of this world? How many in the church have no interest in prayer or in study or in seeing people saved or in the advancement of the gospel on earth? And then he writes this, listen, and this is hard. He said, these are the real enemies of the cross. It's not so much those who deny the doctrines of the cross as is those who oppose its influence on their own hearts. It's not so much those who live to scoff and deride Christ as it is those who mind earthly things that injure this holy cause of the gospel. Inordinate appetites. Boasting in glory. Boasting in the sin in a glorious fashion. And storing up treasures here on earth. Paul says, these are indicators. They are all marks of someone who is destined for destruction. And then he says in verse 18, look. He says, for, I, for as I have often told you before, and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. And what I love about this, he's not teaching this to lift himself up, saying, look at me, I'm not like this. He's not teaching this to, to hurt people's feelings or divide the church. He's teaching this with a broken heart. He says, I, I say this to you even with tears. Why? Why does Paul say this and teach this and write this, knowing it was going to be hard to hear? He does so because he's gotten that glimpse 
He understands better than most the holiness of God. He understands better than most the sin of man. And he understands better than than most that there will come a time when Christ does come again in glory and he does judge and there'll be this separating of the right and the left, of the wheat and the chaff, of the sheep and the goat. And he'll say, citizens of heaven and citizens of hell. And Paul gets that. And he says, do you see the magnitude of it? He's not saying, run after this great prize because it's great. And it is. He's saying, because the end is either incredibly miraculous and wonderful or catastrophic and wicked and evil. And you don't want this. And so he says this crying. And he's crying. I have no doubt that as he wrote this, there were tears being shed. Because he understood that the enemy of the cross was an enemy of Christ. And an enemy of Christ is an enemy of God. And an enemy of God will have a destiny of destruction. Period. And it broke his heart. The thought of it broke his heart. The thought of some of his friends and some of his family members who were raised as Pharisees. It broke his heart. The thought that there were people in the church that were coming and they were professing Christ and being baptized but would never see Christ because they were never baptized by the Holy Spirit broke his heart. Paul took very seriously the words of Christ in Matthew chapter 7 when Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Only he who is a citizen of heaven will enter heaven. And then Christ says, many, just as Paul, many who are enemies of the cross, Christ said, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Didn't we do all these things? These are people in the church. These are people who profess Christ. These are people who claim the title Christian. And Christ said to them, I I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, you evildoer. What more catastrophic words could anyone ever hear? There are none. There are none thinking that you have come before Christ, thinking that you're saved in Christ, thinking that you know him. And he says, I don't know you. I've never known you. Because you've never put your trust and your hope in me. You've never relied upon my saving grace and my work on the cross. It's all been about you, your appetites, your glory, your treasures. It's always been about you. Paul says there are many now, and I would say there are many now in the church who are enemies of the cross that it would be wise for us not to follow. And as a pastor, I say to you, have you examined your hearts? Have you asked yourself... What is my greatest appetite? Is it Christ? To know him. What is my greatest glory? Is it Christ? What is my greatest treasure? Is it Christ? That we use this to examine ourselves as well. Now you say, "Hmm, you got to start like this. We got to start like this on a Sunday morning. Paul, he knows that this is, he turns immediately. And he says, now, citizens of heaven, turn your eyes, turn your ears to heaven. Look with me. Who are the citizens of heaven? Verse 20, he says, But, in contradistinction to those whose destiny is destruction, he says, But, our citizenship is in heaven. 
We. Those who know Christ. And I'm not talking, I'm not saying know about, but those who know Christ and know the power of his resurrection and know the gospel of grace. Those who know him, those who know him, we see that there are, there are two distinct communities and there are two distinct citizenships and they're both real and we all belong to one. And he says, but look, he says, look more closely. I mean, most of us in here would say, oh, we're, we've gathered, we're Christians. We all live in the Bay Area. We're all citizens of the United States, maybe, right? And we're all residents of California. He says, look more closely, citizens of heaven. Do you see who you really are? Do you know who you really are? Because if you're a citizen of heaven, then you ought to live differently than the citizens of hell. If you're a citizen of heaven, then you should not be living as though your end is destruction. Because it's not, it's life. And he's saying lovingly, Live like it. (laughs) Live like your citizenship testifies. He says, you've been born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. Why are you living like the pagans? You have God, the Holy Spirit, indwelling you. Why are you living like this? In Colossians chapter 1, he said, listen, you've already been rescued from the dominion of darkness and brought into the kingdom of the Son. Your citizenship has already been changed. You have your new card, your new identity. No longer a citizen of darkness, but a citizen of light. No longer a citizen of hell, but in Christ a citizen of heaven. Paul says, follow these people. Emulate these people. And they're around us. He says, they love Christ first and foremost. They pursue Christ. They press on toward Christ. They're the ones running the race. Look to them. Follow them. They're great examples. Those are the ones, Paul says, follow. Because the citizen of heaven will not find their ultimate appetite in anything other than Christ. The citizen of heaven will not find their glory in anything or anyone, and certainly not in sin. They won't find it in anything or anyone other than Christ. The citizen of heaven realizes their treasure, their greatest treasure, their pearl of great price, is Christ himself. Paul says, those people are the ones you want to watch. Those are the ones you want to follow. Those are the ones you want to emulate. Because they're on a road. They're on a path. They're running a race that leads to life. Verse 20, Paul says, The citizens of heaven eagerly await a Savior from heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, you want to to watch someone? You want to emulate someone? You want to follow someone? Follow those people. Those who are waiting eagerly For Christ to come back. You say, well, that's that's kind of weird. I get the appetite thing, I get the glory thing, I get the treasure thing. But why? What's this waiting for? Why? What's what's going to happen when he comes back? Why Why should I wait for this? The person who has put their faith in a Savior, the person who has submitted to the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, realizes this is the citizen of heaven. And through the gospel of grace and by God's providence, God has revealed, said, listen, there is a treasure. There's an ultimate treasure. And it's Christ himself. And the citizens of heaven see that. They see that Christ is the one. And that he will satisfy their deepest hungers. And that he will fill their glory-starved hearts with his glory. And that he will become their ultimate treasure. So they won't won't be consumed with trying to get all the glitters here on earth because they will have him. 
When we know him and when being known by him and seeing him and being seen by him and dwelling in him, when this becomes your driving force in life, when you say, what is my purpose? It's to know Christ. It's to serve Christ. What is your greatest joy? Knowing Christ and loving Christ. What's your greatest treasure? It's Christ himself. What fills you right now? It's the glory of Christ. When these things become real to you as citizens of heaven, then all those other things will have their proper place. Jesus said in John 7, it's the last day of the Feast of Tabernacle. He stands up in the temple and he makes this statement that made several angry and want to kill him. He was good at that. I mean, he was good at saying things that made people want to kill him. He said this boldly. He declared this. He said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Listen, saints. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being, from his stomach, from his appetite, will flow rivers of living water. Jesus uses the same word in in Luke, in John 7, 38. He uses the same word that Paul uses here in verse 19, that word appetite. But he uses it in a completely different light. Paul's saying those who are destined for destruction, they're trying to constantly feed their appetite and they're always hungry. And Jesus says, come to me and drink from me. And I will satisfy your appetite. But not only will I satisfy, I will make you overflowing. He reverses the trend. Instead of always being hungry and seeking and consuming, he says, I'm going to fill you and you'll spill over and you'll bless others and you'll minister to others. What a difference. What a difference in life. What a different way to approach life. Instead of being hungry, being satisfied. Instead of being glory starved, being glory filled. Instead of chasing after all those things, foolishly thinking, and this is how we think, as soon as I get that, whatever that is for you, and it's different for a lot of us, right? For those who aren't married who want to be married, it's to get married. For those who are married and want to have children but don't have children, it's to have children. For those who are unemployed, what do we want? We want the job, right? For those who are employed and they have a job, they want a better job. For those who have a good job, they want more money. For those who want to retire, they want to retire early and well. And it just goes on and on and on. That that is always there and that that never goes away. And there's always another that after it. Have you ever noticed that? Have you? You get the one thing and then what? Mm, it's good, but it doesn't satisfy. So it must be something else. What is it? And then you get that one thing. It's good. It doesn't satisfy. It'll never satisfy. Because the citizen of heaven says, you know what? If it's not Christ, I will always be hungry. I will always be glory starved. I'll always be pursuing those earthly... Tra- it, it, if it's not Christ, because he's the only one. He's the only one who says, I will come and I'll fill you. And your cup will overflow. He said this. He continues in John 7. He says, I'm going to come and I'm going to fill you. I'm going to fill you with the Holy Spirit. I'm going to fill you with God. And then that filling will, will, will lead to a life where you bless others immeasurably. You see, when we're starving, we're always trying to consume. When we're filled, we give. Right? When we're glory starved, the attention's always on us. When we're glory filled, we see others, we focus on others. When our life is about getting all the treasures of, he- of earth, It steps on people. 
But if we already have the treasure of heaven, we can give our treasures away to those who need. It changes everything. It's the upside-down kingdom. It reverses the paradigm completely. Only Jesus Christ can quench the thirst that satisfies the hungry appetite of the sinful soul. Only Christ. Christ alone. Only Jesus Christ and only his glory can fill the glory-starved vacuum created by sin. Only Christ. Only Jesus Christ can redirect our minds from earthly treasures to the heavenly treasure. I mean, say, what do I need? You need something better. More, better put, you need someone better. How do you get your mind off all the earthly treasures? All the things that you want. You got to have someone better. And Christ says, he's saying lovingly, I'm better. I'm better than the job. I'm better than the retirement. I'm better than the wife. I'm better. Put your arms around me. Drink deeply from me. I'm better. I will overcome all those other appetites. I will satisfy. And the only reason that we continue to pursue things other than Christ to satisfy our appetite, to get our glory and to store up our treasures is because, listen saints, we just don't see him clearly yet. We don't. When we get the glimpse of Christ, everything is put in its proper place. Lori and I have a friend, relative, uh, who's younger than us. She was married, college graduate, very driven woman. Married, two children, but her career was very much her life. And, and she, she desired to rise rapidly. And she, she wanted to make a name for herself. Her husband was diagnosed with cancer a couple years back now in August. Melanoma, advanced stages. He was dead in 10 months. Young woman, now a widow, two children. And she sees things differently. I mean, everything's changed for her. Because what she used to want, that treasure, she thought, if I can have this position, and I can have this title, and I can have this salary, and I can live in this community, then I'll have it. Now, it's not work. It's family. It's not career title. It's mom, children. What does she want most now? You ask her, she wants her husband back. She had treasure right in front of her which she did not see until that treasure was taken away. The citizen of heaven has treasure, who is Christ, right there, right in front of us. And the only reason we continue to pursue all these foolish things, whatever they may be for you, is because you have yet to see him and grasp him and drink from him. Otherwise, we wouldn't. Nothing other than Jesus will do for the citizens of heaven. And so what do we do? We wait eagerly for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, to come from heaven, to complete what is broken, to restore us completely. Now here's the problem. Here's the problem as I see it. Merely saying there are two distinct citizenships, two realms, two eternal destinations doesn't really help me in going the right direction. I get it cognitively, and it makes sense to me. But how do I make sure that I'm going in the right direction? How do I know I'm not following the wrong person? How do I know that I'm following Christ? How? 
Third point, we'll close. Look at verse 1. Paul says something very interesting here. He says, therefore, my brothers, if you have your Bible open, it's a change in paragraph. I don't think it's a good place for a change in paragraph. In the Greek manuscripts, there's no paragraph. So they're, they're guessing. I don't think it's a good place. I think this ties in much better with the previous section. But that's my opinion. Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for my joy and crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. Now, if you read it carefully, you go, you say, wait a minute. When did he say how to stand firm? What did I miss here? I'm reading through this and he says, that's how you stand firm. How do I stand firm? When did he tell us? Because I want to know how to stand firm. Because if I'm standing firm, I'm going in the right direction. But how do I stand firm? Verse 20 and verse 21. He tells us two things. There are others, but I'm just going to give you two. In verse 20, we stand firm by resting on the promise that Christ is going to come again. We stand firm by saying, he's coming again. And then in verse 21, we stand firm in knowing that he's coming with power. If Christ has power but he doesn't come again to complete the work, then you can't stand firm in that because our situation is kind of hopeless, right? He has the power but he's not going to come. He's not going to redeem. If he comes again and he doesn't have the power, that's not a very good situation either, right? Paul says... He's coming again. And when he comes, he's going to come with power. In fact, he's going to come with a power that's able to restore all things, including you completely. Now, this is a fundamental Christian teaching and a fundamental Christian belief. I know there are many in the world and there are many in the church who argue that he didn't come the first time. And there are even more that say he's not coming a second time. Even Peter dealt with this. Remember in 2 Peter chapter 3? They will say, where is this coming he promised? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. You thought you were impatient, right? I mean, these are Peter's contemporaries. Say, well, he's not here yet, therefore, what? He's not here yet, therefore, he's not coming? That's wonderful logic. I haven't died yet, therefore, I'm not going to die. That makes no sense. Because he hasn't come doesn't mean he's not coming. The citizen of heaven will draw themselves to John 14... When Christ says to his disciples, listen, I'm coming back. And when I come back, I'm going to what? I'm going to bring you. I'm going to take you to be with me. Why? So you can be where I am. So we can be together. The citizen of heaven waits eagerly for this. They think about it. They dream about it. Because his coming, I mean, his coming, just that single truth changes how we live, right? I mean, if he is coming back. In all of his glory, not as a suffering servant, not first advent, second advent, conquering king, all of his glory, all of his power. And he's going to come and he's going to judge living in the dead. How are we going to live? We're going to live differently, right? If if you knew, you don't, but if you did. The Bible says you don't, so don't say, oh, we know. You don't know. But if you knew Christ were going to come back tomorrow, what would this day be like for you? I imagine much repenting. I do. I I imagine we'd spend a lot of time in confession. I imagine we'd also spend a lot of time talking to people, right? If you knew Christ, you'd say, you, all your brothers, all your, all your family members, all your friends, your coworkers, say, listen, I got news. I don't care if you think I'm crazy, but you got to hear this. We would live with a, 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 a burning desire to mortify sin. We'd live with a greater passion to share the gospel with the lost, especially those that we know. 
we would live with a, a, a greater understanding of, of keeping and guarding our hearts and minds so that we're not torn away by this appetite or that treasure or this sinful glory. We'd live differently. And Paul's saying, we wait eagerly so that we live differently. This pondering and meditating on his coming again should bring such joy. I mean, that truth, when, if you, when you stop, not if, when you do, do, please, this week, ponder on his coming as a citizen of heaven. Citizen of hell, not good, right? He's coming to earth. But as a citizen of heaven, ponder his coming, what that will be like. When he comes and he says, here, come, I'm back. Let's go. Come on. I'm going to take you with me. No more pain, no more suffering, no more tears. I'm going to restore. It'll guard us from the temptations that we're so easily entrapped by. It will. It'll take our minds off the earthly things and it will redirect us, focus back to him and back to heaven. There's a book called Military Kids Speak. And it's this compilation of children today whose mothers and fathers serve overseas. This one 13-year-old, she wrote this in anticipation of her father returning from Iraq. I loved it. Listen. She said, I dream. I dream. And every day I dream about the day my father returns from his assignment. I dream about everything going back to normal. I dream about happiness and all the wonderful experiences my, fa- my, my family will go through when he's home. I dream about my father returning home safely. I dream. When we, when Paul says, citizens of heaven eagerly await, that's what they're doing. They're dreaming, they're contemplating, they're meditating. Because it will impact. She was different in how she lived now because of her expectation of her father's return. Now, we've got it even better Because we don't have to worry about his safe return. We know he's coming back. The same God who promised to come the first time, the same God that was born of the Virgin Mary, the same God that lived a sinless life and died a criminal's death and rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, the same God who seated at the right hand of the Father, that same God is coming back. But there's another reason we can stand firm. Christ says, I'm not only going to come back, but I'm going to come back with a power so magnificent, it will completely transform all of creation and you specifically. Look with me. Paul says, stand firm because of this. Verse 21. Jesus, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so they will be like his glorious body. This Jesus, when he comes back, he's not just going to come back and say, come on, children, let's go. He's going to come back and he's going to make everything right. He's going to restore a broken universe, a broken creation. He's going to right all the wrongs that have ever taken place since that first sin in the garden. And included in that is us. He's going to take us by the power he will use to bring all things in submission to him, which is sufficient... He will take that same power and he will make us new. And it says literally, we will be transformed. Our lowly bodies, our sinful, broken, anxious-filled, sickly, disease-ridden bodies will be completely and totally transformed into glorious bodies just like his. You know what that means? 
All your longings, all your desires, all your hopes, all the fears, all the anxiety, all the brokenness. And if you're older, you go, I know those. Younger, you think, I don't know so much. But you know them. We'll be restored in Christ. He will make us into the people we so desperately want to be. Why do we chase after the appetites that are not good for us? Why do we try to gain glory even in our sin? Why do we pursue earthly treasures? Because we're not who we're supposed to be. And so Christ said, when I come back, I will make you who you're supposed to be. Radiant, beautiful, glorious, filled with my glory as I am. Nothing else the believer should want than to be as Christ is so we can know him as he is. To have that intimacy without the sin. Jesus coming again in glory with power. The citizen of heaven's hope is not in our ability to save ourselves. Now, we've got to be really careful here. Self-salvation is fill your belly. Self-salvation is get your own glory. Self-salvation is find your own treasure. Do it yourself. The citizen of heaven struggles with all these things as well. I mean, I hope early on you thought, oh man, you described the citizen of hell and I think that might be me. <laughs> because I chase out, I have these inordinate appetites at times. And I try to bring glory to myself at times. And I pursue earthly treasures at times. So what's the difference if we all do it? Christ saying the difference is the citizens of heaven know they can't save themselves. And so they cry out for mercy. The citizens of heaven, by God's grace, realize I need a savior. And that's why what do they do? They eagerly await the savior to come from heaven. They can't save themselves. They recognize, they struggle with all these things. But they place their hope not in themselves, not in their appetites, not in their own glory, and not in their own treasures. They placed all of their hope, all of their life, all their dreams, all their longings, all their future in one man. One. They placed it in Christ. That's the difference. Citizens of heaven are no longer playing the game that ends in destruction. Citizens of heaven, by God's grace, have seen the end. And they said, I want mercy instead. I cry out to you, God, instead. Citizens of heaven have seen, by God's grace, the citizen of heaven. The scriptures call him the darling of heaven. I love that term for Christ. He was the consummate citizen of heaven. And what did he do? He came down to earth. The citizen of heaven came to earth. Why? He came to experience and endure the consequences of the citizens of hell. He came... And then he lived and then he died so that he would take upon himself the very consequences, the very just deserts that we, citizens of hell, rightly deserved. And that was hell itself. Why? Why would the citizen of heaven do that? Why would anybody in their right mind do that? So that you could have a transfer of citizenship. So that we, citizens of hell, darkness and isolation, could be brought from darkness into light. And what Christ did is he took his citizenship on the cross and he imparted it to you. He said, take it. I'm giving it up. I'm going to endure the life and death of a citizen of hell so that you, a citizen of hell, can become a citizen of heaven. There's no greater gift. When Christ is here and I give it to you at what cost? At an eternal cost to me, but it is free to you. 
It is free. The gospel of grace is come and take it. It's my gift. In 1 Corinthians 1, 18, Paul says, The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. To those who end his destruction, to the, it's foolishness. But to us who are being saved, to the citizens of heaven, it is the power of God. It's not just good news, it's powerful news. And it means this. If you're sitting here thinking, I got appetites that I can never quench. I can never get over. The power of the cross, the Holy Spirit says, I can overcome that for you and in you. If you are at that point where you say, you know, I I spend most of my life trying to fill myself with glory. And I'm always glory starved. The cross of Christ The gospel of grace says, listen, take my glory, because that's what he offers. If you're just sick and tired of chasing after treasures on earth, and it's tiresome, isn't it? I mean, it's so, uh, it's, it's wearisome to constantly chase after those things you can never get a hold of. Christ says, see me as your treasure, and take He said, if you're hungry, then come and I will feed you. If you're thirsty, come and I will give you drink. He's saying, if you're glory starved, come and I will fill you with my glory. And this is the glory of the holy triune God. He's, I'll pour it out in your life. All my glory, I'll pour in your life. He said, if you're starving for treasures, realize that if you have me, you have it. You have infinitely more than you could ever possibly imagine wanting. So he invites you to this table. He invites us daily to that table. So that we would be able to stand firm as we head toward heaven. By God's grace this morning, if you are questioning, I I don't know where my citizenship resides. Resolve that. Resolve that. Repent and believe. Do you see the sign? And follow Jesus. Let's make it real simple. If you don't know where your citizenship is, repent, believe, and follow Jesus. And if you say, I know I'm a citizen of heaven, then live like it. Live like it. Let's pray that God would give us that grace and power this morning as a church. Father, this passage is hard. It it delineates clearly darkness and light, the sheep and the goats, and citizenships, Lord, where one end is destruction, the other one is eternal life. And I know even in our church, Lord, even in a gospel-centered church, this is hard. But I pray for great reflection with this teaching. I pray we would ask ourselves, to whom do we belong? Are we citizens of heaven? Am I trying to to satisfy an appetite that's not in Christ? Am I trying to bring glory to myself or worse yet glorifying in the sin I live in? Am I chasing after treasures that are not stored up in heaven? Am I? I pray, Lord, that we would examine ourselves in light of this teaching and then we would respond to your son. 
we would hear him again and again calling us out of the darkness and into his light. And we'd say, yes, Lord, yes, Lord. Give us this vision that Paul had, this understanding that Paul had, that we might run the race in Christ's holy name. Amen.